Hello and welcome to episode 2 of the Comic Book Attic Giant Size Super Special. Let's start out the episode by looking at a comic that I read recently that I greatly enjoyed. Well, at least most of it. And that is the reprint Famous First Edition, number F8. Why they decided to give it a letter and number, I don't know. But it's the 8th edition of Famous First Edition, if that makes sense. This particular issue, and I should mention that these are over, oversized, treasury-sized editions, um, this edition reprints Flash Comics number 1 from 1940. January was the cover date. Um, this particular reprint was published in August-September 1975. I have several of these famous first editions um, that I picked up years ago and uh, just haven't gotten around to reading them. But I wanted to read this um, first issue of Flash Comics. I, I, over the past month I've been in a phase of um, reading about DC's Golden Age characters. Um, and I found this in my collection, unread, and uh, wanted to officially read for the first time the um, origin of the Jay Garrick Flash, as well as uh, Hawkman and Johnny Thunder, as it turns out. I knew that um, more than one character first appeared in Flash Comics number one, um, and now I kind of know that uh, we have these three uh, well-known characters, as well as the Whip and a few others that I'll talk about. So anyway, um, this this was great fun to read, the uh, origin of the Jay Garrick Flash. We find out from the beginning that Jay's love of his life, Joan, uh, here maiden name Joan Williams, was at least at the beginning of this story, pretty darn superficial. <laughs> um, he wants to go out on a date with her, and she says, I don't think I don't think so. You're a scrub on the football team, and Captain Bull Tyron's already asked me. And he's like, you mean you won't go out with me just because I'm a football scrub? And she says, no, but because a man of your building brains could be a star. A scrub is just an old washwoman. You don't put your mind to football. Her, her phrases are, are a little disjointed there, but... Anyway, at that point, I would say, well, forget you. But instead, he says, I'll show her. And, um... He's just not that good at football. And, honestly, at this point, with both of them being concerned about him and football. I really don't care about either one of them, but it gets better for Jay. Now, those of you who have a passing knowledge of Jay Garrick's origin know about the whole hard water thing. He inhaled hard water fumes, and it gave him super speed powers, and if you think of that in terms of what we think of today as hard water, um, it really makes little sense. But, um, in reading this origin, 
you see that what they call hard water is really a concoction of um, gas elements that Jay has put together in a research laboratory because he's a good student. When these elements smash on the floor and he breathes in the fumes, this combination of gas elements are what really give him the powers and unfortunately they just refer to these gases as hard water. Really have no idea why. The fun, funny thing is that um, the thing that causes him to knock over the, the chemicals, the, the gas elements, is that he's had a long night of doing experiments. It's 3.30 in the morning, and he says, I need a smoke. On the next panel, you see him lighting up, uh, puffing out some cigarette smoke, saying, boy, that feels good. Football training or no football training, oop. That's the moment when he knocks over the hard water fumes. So, <laughs> his desire for cigarettes are really what causes him to knock over these uh, containers. Interesting to think about. Um, I, I can see now, I can see um, the Flash now doing anti-smoking commercials and, and people replying with, well, yeah, but it gave you superpowers, didn't it? Anyway. <laughs> so, um, Jay is, is recovering. He, he, it says he lies between life and death for weeks, but he recovers. And this scientist fellow, this doctor, scientist, fellow, guy, He's saying that um, science knows that hard water makes a person act much quicker than ordinary. And that by intaking these fumes, Jay's going to be a freak of science. Well, I don't know what science this guy knows that is so familiar with hard water having this effect, but I'm thinking that if he's saying that this is a well-known science fact, then why couldn't anyone just inhale hard water and become the Flash? Seems odd. Anyway, um, he makes no um, no bones about revealing his secret identity to Joan. Um, it's just a thing he does to impress her, saying, hey look, I'm fast, I'll get you this library book before you can even walk there. Um, on the football field, he becomes a star. And, you know, later stories would portray this kind of thing as cheating, but not here. And um, he sees in a newspaper some racketeers doing some uh, criminal work, and that night... This is just a little caption. It says, That night the gangsters are visited by a figure clad in the wings of Mercury, a human bolt of lightning, the Flash. So, there's really no <laughs> inspiration or origin for the outfit or even any, any notation of its creation. It's just he, he's looking at his newspaper. He says, uh, Something ought to be done about this. Boom. Flash costume. 
He's out there. I actually don't even see him do anything to these criminals. Um, you don't really see him in his flash get-up uh, interacting with any other characters until a little later. Next thing we see is Jay Garrick playing tennis with himself. <laughs> well, there's some bad guys who attempt to shoot Joan because uh, they're, they've kidnapped her father who is uh, some smart scientist guy. Of course, uh, Jay Garrick stops the bullet. Long story short, Jay as the Flash is on his way to take out the bad guys. And there's one funny part in which the Flash is again outracing a bullet and catching it. And uh, there's just a, a full panel of, of writing that says, How does the Flash stop a bullet in flight without suffering injury to himself? Explanation. His process, blah, 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 blah. Just, uh, boom, a panel of information. You would not see that today. That's a, that's, uh, that's a convention that has fallen away. When uh, the Flash rescues Joan's father and they're running down the street... He says, if I run fast enough, no one will see us. And Joan's father is saying, you run so fast, now I can't breathe. Well, he doesn't seem to address this, and the next panel shows him delivered safely to Joan, so I guess he um, didn't die from being unable to breathe. But the Flash, in the end, does take out the bad guys, and um, his secret is safe from Joan's father, uh, although Joan, of course, knows he he's taken out these villains called the Faultless Four. Not the Frightful or the Fantastic, but the Faultless. And I, I really kind of enjoyed this adventure. Um, the uh, the story went along at, at quite a fast pace. Actually, huge chunks were just bypassed, and this you know storytelling style. Just uh, getting it right up to speed, pun intended, um, and moving on with the story. It was quite refreshing. The next story in the issue, and there is no more flash in this issue, was a, um, uh, a strip called Cliff Cornwall by Sheldon Moldoff. He's a special agent. And this one, I, I gotta admit, I didn't really like, and I don't remember much about it. Um, he's a secret agent. He runs into this woman named Liz Valier. They team up, take on some bad guys, defeat the bad guys. Um, he's off to a new job, and she's going to join him. It says, follow Cliff Cornwall and Liz into new army adventures in next month's issue of Flash Comics. Then we come to Hawkman, or as they say, the Hawkman. And, and this is a beautifully drawn strip, in, at least in terms of you know, the more uh, primitive uh, Golden Age art of a lot of, of uh, that appeared in a lot of Golden Age comics. Um, I don't want to uh, say that all Golden Age art was primitive, just that uh, certain artists were more primitive than later artists. But this. Um, there's there's a quite a charm to this, quite a beauty to the artwork of this first appearance of Hawkman. And we see Carter Hall um, getting a 
knife from Jim Rock in Egypt. I don't know who Jim Rock is, but, you know. And um, it causes Carter to kind of go to sleep and remember this past life as himself as Khufu, Prince Khufu. And, of course, he remembers there being a Shiera and uh, um, Hathset and all these these creatures. When he, uh, creatures, people, when he wakes up. And so when he goes out into public, he sees some people running away from a train fire. He runs to see what's causing the rails to turn blue, because that's strange. He bumps into this woman that he immediately realizes is Shiera. And um, <laughs> they look at the destruction of the, the train. And it's a subway train. And uh, Shiera says, the poor people on the trains burned to cinders. That's it. They're dead. They're all dead. And we move the story on. I love it. <laughs> um, but she goes with him and, and they realize they've both been having the dreams. And it's very mighty, it's, it's mighty convenient that this is all happening just right here, right now. Um... And he, he realizes he has to go find um, the bad guy. And it says, okay, here's another one of these quick change, um, no dwelling on explanation kind of a costume origins, just like the Flash. It says he goes into his laboratory, tunes in on his dynamo detector. I don't know what that means. And emerges shortly after from his weapon room, clad as a grim as a grim jest in the guise of the ancient hawk god Anubis. And there he is. And it says, um, the Hawkman, whose extraordinary powers are derived from Carter Hall's discovery of the secret of the ages, the ninth metal, not to be confused with the later called nth metal, which defies the pull of the Earth's gravity. And the Hawkman goes forth. So, boom. Full costume, wings, everything. And uh, as if he never needed any kind of practice, he just goes flying through the air. Off in search of the bad guy. Which he finds, or I should say, whom he finds. And <laughs> so they're fighting. And um, Shira gets drawn into it. He goes to rescue her. As he does so to defeat the villain, he just flies up on him, aims a crossbow, and kills the dude. <laughs> There's no accidental killing. There's no, you know, the villain gets killed as a result of his own folly. How convenient. No, there's none of that. He just, he just flies up on him, aims the crossbow and, or bow and arrow, I can't quite tell at this point. And kills him. <laughs> and uh, they go home. And he says uh, he's afraid he hasn't seen the last of Hastor. So we're supposed to follow the further adventures, which I actually would like to do. I'm actually interested in reading Flash Comics number two so far for Flash and Hawkman. Now on to Johnny Thunder, or as the uh, caption says in this first issue, Johnny Thunderbolt. An odd take on this, we, we see his origin from a toddler. Uh, his father, Simon B. Thunder, 
the bank clerk in uh, the Case National Bank who lived in a four-bedroom cottage with bath in the Bronx section of New York with his wife Mildred Thunder. And I love how they say four-room cottage with bath. Don't make a mistake of it being without bath. <laughs> but someone kidnaps um, young Johnny Thunder. And they don't um, see him until years later. They, he's taken off into um, Bod Bodonesia. And of course you have the whole say you uh, being repeated by the people. The code words that will unleash the magic. At least in this issue there is no thunderbolt in the form of a human or a humanoid. It's just this it's just that magic things happen. He says uh, something and it happens. So I don't it, it, the uh, thunderbolt as it were doesn't get personified here. Um, and <laughs> Johnny's family has has taken on great hardships as it says um, over the years that he's been missing. His father lost his job at the bank. Two more children joined the family in the next four years because you know that's going to cause everything to go to crap. You know, kids. Jeez. And, uh, but he got a job, steady work, on a 3rd Avenue streetcar. And it shows him driving a streetcar with a nifty little sound effect of ding diddy ding ding. That's right, love that. Uh, but the family's reunited, and uh, Johnny gets a job at um, a department store, and he's, he's, he's a window washer, and um, his powers, well, the power of the magic. It's first revealed when he says to the guy, Say you! Sorry I don't know your name, but I forgot to bring a sponge. And I uh, got an extra one. The guy, in getting a sponge for Johnny, falls. Remember, they're window washers. He falls. And, and Johnny's... And everything Johnny says happens. So when he says, Hang on. The guy's hanging in air. Um, he tells this guy to go jump at a duck and... You see this guy jumping towards a duck going, boo. I think it's a toy duck. It is a toy duck. Um, so everything Johnny says, it, it just happens. Which is fun. It's, it's, it's a very humorous uh, story. It's, it's played semi-seriously. Semi-comic. But uh, these guys um, try to kidnap Johnny, take him back to Badnesia. And, uh, so a whole other confrontation happens. Johnny says, say you again, and then everything he says happens. And, um, he, he at this point doesn't know why, but his boss fires him for wrecking the store. And it ends with, uh, the manager yelling, get out, and Johnny saying, do you call that justice? Well, that's where the story ends. And so I was kind of interested to see more. I, I really do want to see uh, how that character develops from, from that. Um, then we have uh, the, uh, part one of two of a two-page text piece called Warfare in Space by Gardner Fox. And this was dead boring. I'm sorry, Gardner. Um, I remember nothing about it. Then a strange little text piece on Flash stamps, which is really just about stamps, nothing to do with the Flash. Um, 
they, they kind of treat everything in this issue as a Flash something, because it's called Flash Comics, whether it has to do with the superhero Flash or not. As with the next story called The Demon Dummy, a Flash picture novel in two parts. I have to say, this story, The Demon Dummy, was one of my favorite in the issue. And it's not a superhero story at all. It has no... No, um, you know, heroes, whether super or unsuper. It's just a story um, about this ventriloquist, the great Dunstan, who is in love with this girl, but he has this rival who's not a nice fellow. And this this uh, fellow frames him for murder. He therefore gets uh, put in prison, and this bad guy marries the girl that he loves. And meanwhile, in prison, the ventriloquist goes steadily, more, grows steadily more crazy. He thinks his, his dummy is real. He swears revenge on this bad guy who took his girl and his life, um, put him in prison. And um, we learn that the bad guy has eventually uh, confessed to the murders. He's, he's been arrested. He's, he's being sent to prison so that... Dunstan can be freed, and so now Dunstan is has been released. He's half crazy. He's sworn revenge on this man for wrecking his life, but this man is now in prison where he was, and he's out. So we have this reversal of situation to where the innocent man is now freed, but his life is ruined. He's half crazy. And the person he swears revenge on is now in prison where he can't get to him. I was thoroughly engrossed with this story. It was it was quite great. And uh, let's see, the, the um, only credit here was Ed Whelan. I don't know if he did uh, uh, story and uh, art, but um, this, as they say at the beginning, is a, a two-part story, so the conclusion is in the next issue, and... I want Flash Comics number two, or at least a, a reprint, so that I can finish this story. I really liked it. It was very, um, I mean, you know, it reminded you of an old, older movie from, you know, the 1940s, perhaps. But I love old movies like that, and the story was, um, um, you, you weren't sure what was going to happen next, and, and things just kept going wrong, and so you really couldn't predict what might be a happy ending, and I really don't know what's going to happen in the next part of the story, which is exciting. So, anyway, the last strip of the issue is uh, the whip, and um, he, uh, I, I, I'm sure he appears later in DC Comics in some form or another, but he's uh, similar in vain to Zorro. It's just that he has a whip. And um, this was by John B. Wentworth and George Storm. I can't say I really enjoyed this. I was kind of bored. I don't remember what happened in it. I kind of forced myself to read through it. So, not too much to say about that. And uh, that's that's the issue. So, for the majority of this Golden Age comic from 1940, I was thoroughly 
um, engaged and loving it. So if any of you ever get a chance to read this reprint, whether it's in a, um, uh, uh, not a masterwork, but the DC equivalent um, archive, or um, even this famous first edition, uh, do yourself a favor, especially if you're into the old comics like I am. And if you are, then that's why you're listening to this podcast. And if you're not, well, you're not hearing me. So, Famous first edition, number F8, 1975, reprinting Flash Comics number one from 1940. Look out for the Batman! Look out! Kapowie and Kazoom And 30 crooks go flying clear across the room They try to get away, but they know they can't escape That nemesis of crime who wears a mask and cape Look out for the Batman Look out for the Batman With Robin at his side He's busy day and night Upholding law and order note of a comic I read in April that I unexpectedly really enjoyed, and that is uh, Black Hawk Special, number one, from 1992. This was written by John Ostrander, uh, Mike Vosberg is the artist, Steve Haney, letterer, Julia Laquament, colorist, and Mike Gold, editor. This is called, uh, the story's called Hardwire. And the story stretches from Saigon to uh, where where it begins to the United States, revolving around the Kennedy assassination. Um, It's quite the um, adventure. Also, we have the death of uh, one of the Black Hawks, 
and that death is really what kind of spurs the um, the uh, adventure forward. And we kind of get a glimpse through this special of what the Blackhawks were doing through the 1960s. But it's um, it's a tale of uh, you know Blackhawks um, getting revenge for their their uh, lost teammate over over years, and it's it's uh, like I said, um, very engaging adventure and um, uh, intrigue and peril and action. And um, I couldn't put this down. I was just um, so engrossed in this tale. Um, and, you know, it's written by John Ostrander, who wrote the uh, 80s Suicide Squad series, which I loved. And uh, so I shouldn't ex have expected anything less. But uh, the artwork's great. Um, the only, I, I, um, from my memory of, of Mike Vosberg, his art was never this good but I mean it's it's good stuff um, this is a comic I found in a dollar bin you know it's a it's a Blackhawk comic not too many people are into those it's uh, from the 90s a lot of people have negative impressions of the 90s um, a certain percentage of that is justified but um, this is not um, one of the tragedy stories of the 90s. This has um, excellent writing, excellent artwork. It actually reminds me of um, 80s DC um, in terms of its uh, more mature reader titles. Uh, but it's just, it's so good and uh, I'm so happy to have read it and I wanted to pass on the recommendation to you of just how much I enjoyed this, um, and you know, I am not a big fan of Blackhawk or the Blackhawks. It's just not my kind of uh, comic. I, I can count on one, maybe two hands, the number of Blackhawk issues I've actually read. Most exposure to Blackhawk was probably reading some Action Comics Weekly stories, but you know. I, I read one old 1960s issue that I picked up at a flea market. Um, but not too much else. But this, this was excellent. And uh, like I said, for history buffs, conspiracy buffs, um, they do weave it around the assassination of President Kennedy. So there's that too. So anyway, just wanted to give that recommendation Blackhawk Special, number one, 1992. Okay, here I am, driving down the road. Um, it's Memorial Day weekend, Saturday, and I wanted to record uh, one or two pieces for the giant size super special. And this reminds me that uh, I'll, I'll have to somehow reconfigure the Comics on Wheels podcast if I continue that, because... I no longer go to the comic shop Wednesdays, and so I would no longer have something to talk about on the way home from the comic shop. So, we'll see what we can do with that. Anyway, what I wanted to talk about right now 
Uh, I want to take the luxury of having this giant episode talk a little bit about superhero TV shows because I typically shy away from talking about any stuff other than the comics themselves um, <clears throat> just because you know when I listen to comic book podcasts I mostly want to hear about the comic books themselves and not the the movies or the TV shows um, not because I don't love the movies or TV shows but that's just my thing you know that's that's um, not a complaint or anything it's just my style so I tend not to talk about those things on a comic book show anyway I'm gonna do that right now anyway <clears throat> so and and really what what has prompted me to do this is the fact that there are some really good ones out there I didn't really have the motivation before to talk a whole lot about comic book shows superhero shows in particular but right now I am really really loving life <laughs> when it comes to comic book superhero TV shows if you have followed me on uh, the comic book attic rather on Facebook you'll know that my favorite show right now is The Flash and uh I would say that it would qualify right now as my favorite show all the way around. Not just favorite superhero show. Um, and I, I realize that, you know, sometimes it's tough to compare a superhero TV show which is written uh, uh, to a more general audience. It's, um, you know, a lot of melodrama and and um, the kind of stuff that um, you wouldn't find in a serious show like, I don't know, uh, The Wire or something. It's very hard to compare those kind of things. Um, so, you know, when I say it's my favorite show all the way around, it's not because I don't realize or recognize that there are shows out there that are perhaps better written in a, a sense of know the literary world or what have you um, but just in terms of a TV show that I enjoy to the fullest extent to that, that I look forward to every episode every week with anticipation um, that's that's what the flash is for me now <clears throat> it is that way because it to me out of all of the comic book shows, um, you could argue that it has the most comic book superhero, classic superhero comic book appeal. Um, which is kind of my thing. If you like, you know, um, the more street level kind of superheroes, uh, you're probably going to be more enthused about Daredevil, perhaps. Um, and Daredevil is certainly more cinematic, you know, if you're, if you're looking for something that kind of resembles a, a movie film more than, you know, a TV show. Um, but, you know, I, I love good old-fashioned fun comics full of adventure and, you know, all sorts of um, comic book tropes. You know, your, your um, uh, 
supervillains and, and uh, crazy powers and, and events like time travel and all that kind of fun stuff. You know, I love all that um, stuff that you'll find in a, in a traditional superhero comic book. Um, it's it's been exciting, and it's it's had this mystery at its core that, as it unraveled, um, was really quite fascinating. I, I just loved the whole whole thing. So, um, I would say if that's the kind of show you're looking for, if you haven't watched The Flash, my goodness, there's one full season done right now. You can start at the beginning, go all the way through. Um, it just gets more and more exciting as you go. The plot threads come together more and more as you go, even though pretty much every episode you get to meet some new villain, which is awesome. Um, and when I say new villain, I mean a villain that uh, is from the comics, but new to the show. Um, you also get to meet some superheroes. I will tell you, and this is not um, spoiling any part of the story, but if you haven't watched any of The Flash, it's going to spoil some characters who appear. So keep that in mind. But, you know, there is a scene in one of the episodes where there is the bad guy, and you have the assembled heroes of Flash, Arrow, and uh, the Firestorm, and the Atom. And it was just one of those moments that makes your heart skip a beat a little bit. You know, kind of like that scene in the first Avengers movie when they've all assembled for the first time and the camera's panning around them as they're, you know, coming together. It's it's that kind of a thing, you know. It's exciting to see your favorite superheroes in a show like that. So, let me stop gushing about Flash and move on. Connected to that is, of course, Arrow. Now, Arrow is a show that I've always wanted to watch, but um, until recently, I never had. The only episode I had seen was a crossover Flash episode. Um, As the two shows kind of started to intermingle a little more, especially with the upcoming Legends of Tomorrow TV show, which I am supremely excited about, it gave me the uh, motivation to go back and start watching Arrow. So that's actually what I'm doing right now. Last episode, or last night, I buzzed through five episodes. I mean, I'm um, just uh, loving it. So, uh, I like that show quite a bit. Um, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., the Marvel show, at least uh, one of Marvel's shows that's on network. This, <clears throat> this show has been fantastic. It's had its ebbs and flows, it's had its slow points, and it's had its uh, points where you, your mouth drops to the floor because you just can't believe what you just saw. I mean, it, it has run the gamut. It is, um, But, you know, I stuck it through, and I've seen every episode, and I am a huge fan of this show. And, of course, I even watched Agent Carter, um, which was great, by the way. Um... Uh, what's, what is it? Daredevil, yes. Uh, the other Marvel show. I've, I've only, I'm only like four episodes in, so I, I, I can't say a whole lot, but I do recognize that that is a supremely quality show. Uh, at the end of episode two, where, where the, um, the the martial arts scene seems like something right out of a, uh, uh, a 
non-American made martial arts film that was fantastic fantastic um, and unfortunately I'm at my destination but I think I've said everything that I wanted to say specifically about The Flash being my favorite um, so I think that's just what I'll, I'll kind of revolve all my other comments around is The Flash, my favorite superhero TV show check it out if you haven't Ooh, my brother's coming! The Adventures of Castle Mill! Whoa! Spider-Man! It's Captain America! Silver Surfer! Whoa! She-Hulk! Hey, twerp! You better not be in my... Mom, these are my comics again! Marvel superhero Sandfels and Shovels, one included with every Castle Mill. Captain America, Silver Surfer, Spider-Man, and She-Hulk. You can collect a different one each week at White Castle. Bomba the Jungle Boy, number one. There's a comic that I bought quite a while ago, many years ago, um, during the life of the podcast, and I, I posted the cover to this with an episode of the Comic Book Attic, and in an interest in the interests of talking about all the comics that uh, had their covers posted, I uh, read this comic, Bomb of the Jungle Boy, number one, from September, October 1967. There are no credits, although the story is called The Jaws of Doom. And uh, this is a typical Boy in the Jungle story. It says on the cover, TV's Teen Jungle Star. Um, I'm not 100% clear if this was purely a TV comic or if... Uh, they ever used him elsewhere, but um, I don't believe this series lasted very long. Anyway, um, the artwork is is um, is good. It's it's of a, of a type that I I don't believe I've seen before. Um, I can't. In other words, I can't readily uh, guess the artist or suggest an artist that it might be. But ultimately, the story was kind of forgettable. And in the time that has passed since I read this, and the time I'm talking to you now, I don't remember a whole lot about it. Although, Bomba gets to shoot arrows, um, fight wild boars, take on an ocelot with uh, his jaguar friend Kokor. Um, he even gets to ride an ostrich. He gets to leap off a cliff while spears are being thrown at him. He gets to swim in a mighty river. And all sorts of things. And there's there's a bad guy, so it's you know one big adventure tale. There is also a one-page text piece on the Amazon jungle. And I do read all text pages in all comic books. Um, that's just a rule of mine. Not not letters pages. I you know skim letters pages, but I um, read anything that's that's text, especially if it's a, a fiction. This also has an advertisement in comic book form for Major Matt Mason, Mattel's Man in Space. Uh, also, some backup comic strips. If I can get to the back here. Of Peter Puptent, Explorer. And one of the um, well-loved Caps Hobby Hints. These are uh, Henry uh, Boltzoff strips. There's a nice full-page direct currents uh, 
page that tells you about all the other exciting comics that are coming out that month and uh, they they're nice because they actually go into you know detail about what's happening in each issue and it makes each comic sound exciting so that you actually want to go buy it they're not afraid to actually tell you what happens in an issue like many of the solicits you see for comics these days but uh certainly glad i read it bomb of the jungle boy number one from dc comics Another cover I posted recently was for Convergence World's Finest Number One, so I'll go ahead and talk about this. Um, the uh, this giant size super special episode really can contain anything I want, but um, this was just from last month. Uh, beautiful cover with the Seven Soldiers of Victory, Shining Knight, uh, Green Arrow, and Speedy. Star-Spangled Kid, Vigilante, Stripesy, and the uh, Crimson Avenger. This was written by Paul Levitz, penciled by Jim Fern, inked by Joe Rubenstein, lettered by Tom Napoletano, colored by Paul Mounts. And um, this is the story of a cartoonist who... Uh, winds up alongside the Seven Soldiers of Victory as they are inside the dome. Um, and I was actually kind of shocked, surprised, to see that they allowed some of the Seven Soldiers to be killed. So, spoiler alert here, being that this is a somewhat recent comic, um, this version of Green Arrow and Speedy are uh, killed. And a lot of great destruction happens. Shining Knight turns into an, uh, an old man. Um, it's just a lot of um, interesting, interesting progression of these characters that um, we may never have gotten as far as, you know, the resolution of, of what happened to them, at least their um, pre-crisis counterparts, um, because, uh, you know, they, they existed on a um, separate Earth pre-crisis. Of course, um, we're left with the, with the cliffhanger of... of, of most of the Convergence books where the um, big bad keeper of the Convergence world takes down the dome and and uh, they they realize they have to fight against uh, some people from another city. I saw something strange in this issue that I didn't see in some of the others in that we actually had uh, the Shining Knight and his cartoonist companion lifted on a giant hand to be uh, transported to his battle. Uh, interesting. I, I found it interesting how um, certain aspects of this uh, crossover, this dome, this challenge, uh, how they were how they were interpreted by the different writers. 
bottom. Basically, it's all the same, but there were fluctuations, there were inconsistencies between the, the all of the different convergence books. Um, some some details that just didn't uh, come together. But anyway, um, it was nice to see these characters. The book was beautifully drawn, adequately written by Paul Levitz, and um, the first issues of all these Convergence comics had a two-page recap of of these characters' lives. So we saw lots of little um, panels from Golden Age um, Seven Soldiers of Victory stories, along with some of their 70s continued appearances. This is kind of Marvel Saga style. Although I have to say, I do have a complaint about these across the board and all the convergence number ones. The um, narrative of these characters' past uh, histories was very, very disjointed, kind of randomly thrown together, and the choice of what they tell sometimes made no sense. And uh, I think these could have been a lot better, but... I was happy that they did them. So, there's that. Anyway, just wanted to give a quick comment on Convergence World's Finest number one. Crime is just a game to a clown like the Joker. He plays it just the same as a game of crook and poker. But though he stacks the deck before the game begins, no matter Joker never wins Cause the Joker gets drunk The Joker gets drunk He always gets stumped By the Batman He knows every trick Of dirty double dealing He is really slick At the art of card concealing Every time he meets the Batman and his friend, no matter how he cheats, he loses in the end. Yes, the Joker gets drunk, the Joker gets drunk, he always gets stumped by the Batman. Joker always loses, cause when the chips are down and all the bets are in, everybody knows the bad guys never win. Yes, the Joker gets trumped, the Joker gets trumped, he always gets stumped by the Batman. He may think he's wise with all the 
tricks he uses But he should realize A joker always loses Cause when the chips are down And all the bets are in Everybody knows The bad guys never win Yes, the joker gets trumped The joker gets trumped He always gets stumped By the Batman The joker gets trumped I wanted to give a, a short review of something that I normally don't touch upon. This is a paperback novel. The thing that makes this worth talking about is that it's a Challengers of the Unknown novel by Ron Goulart. Now, show of hands, how many people knew that there was a Challengers of the Unknown novel? Yeah, I didn't think so. But it's a, it's a little paperback novel from 1977, the year of my birth. First printing November 1977, a, year, a month after my birth. Um, it's um, meant to be just a you know a short little novel. It's just a lean, mean adventure tale involving a supposed monster, but uh, that doesn't really come into play too much. It has humor, it has a little bit more edge than the comic, mainly because it's not a comic. It has a nice little painted cover featuring the five challengers and a strange sea creature rising out of the water. But I found this, um, and, I, and I put mention of this on the blog years ago, and I posted a picture on Facebook of, of the fact that I was reading it. I picked this up at a, um, like a, flea market store um, for like four bucks and uh, seeing how I posted the picture of it in the past I wanted to uh, make sure I actually read about it and talked about it but uh, my, uh, my overall review of the of the story of the writing was that it wasn't the best but um, it was kind of a novelty, pun intended, to read a Challengers of the Unknown paperback adventure um, that had a little more edge, a little more humor. And uh, so I don't regret it. it. It took quite a while for me to get through it. So unless you're a diehard Challengers fan, um, it might not be recommended reading but I'm glad I read it so Challenges of the Unknown paperback by Ron Goulart 1977 as longtime listeners know I have a quite sizable comic collection um, it's not the biggest one out there but I like to believe I'm trying um, and I hear a lot of people, um, and I do mean a lot of people, it's no one in particular that I'm thinking of, um, talk about comic collecting, especially with large collections, as some type of negative burden in multiple ways. Um, and, I mean, when they're talking about it, they're not talking about me at all. I mean, it's, it's there are conversations I overhear, things I hear or read online, that kind of thing. And 
here are four uh, ways I've written down that things that people have said on this topic. One, the burden of space or lack thereof as a reason that comic collecting is bad because my spouse or significant other says so. Two, the burden of what will my family do with my collection when I'm gone, which could happen any time. I should prepare for that, so comic collecting is bad. Three, the burden of comic collecting because it's clutter, a.k.a. bad. Or four, the burden of comic collecting when you read comics online or on a device, so for the sake of convenience, comic collecting is bad. So, uh, let's look at these, because this stuff really kind of burns me up. I try very hard to avoid commentary about comic book issues because I don't like to argue, I like to get along with people, um, I don't like to rock the boat, because in the long run, nothing matters. <laughs> really, it doesn't. Um, you live life, you're dead. It's that simple. But I have a, a, a giant-sized episode to fill, so I'm going to talk about it briefly. So let's look at the first one. The burden of space, or lack thereof, as a reason that comic collecting is bad, because my spouse or significant other says so. Lack of space sucks. I've had that problem. In the past, I've stacked boxes of comics in hallways, closets, along walls, in living rooms, anywhere. But do not ever, ever compromise your collecting because your significant other nags you about it or gives you ultimatums about it. It's not unreasonable to accumu accumulate these wonderful publications. If they are part of your life, your other must accept them. I truly believe this. It's part of the deal. That's you. And if they don't, they're not worth it. I'm not trying to give relationship advice, but don't be that desperate or so blinded by emotion that you let this happen. And don't ever let them convince you that it's negative behavior. Um, if it's what you love, they should appreciate that. And before you ask, yes, I have a perfectly fine life of relationships. I may be divorced, but this issue had nothing to do with it. And my girlfriend, currently, um, understands that what makes my life a happy place is having the most extensive comic collection I can possibly manage. When we look for places to live, we look for places that can accommodate us and the comics. And the movies, for that matter, too. And if she had some massive collection of something, I'd appreciate that, too. So the second item, the burden of what will my family do with my collection when I'm gone? You know, that could happen any day, so I should prepare for that. Having a large comic collection is bad. Are you serious? You're going to sacrifice the happiness of a comic collection you'd like to have because of something you can only guess about. Something you won't be around for. Something that is part and parcel of settling property upon death. You're not going to live your life to the best because you're worried that someone will have to deal with comics when you're gone? It's utterly morbid to base your life's happiness on impending death, unless you're trying to live life to the fullest because of mortality. That's not good. Enjoy your life. When you're gone, you should hope your family knows you lived a good life because you were allowed to have a big comic collection. In addition, I've heard many people piggyback this issue with the fact that their families wouldn't know the comic's worth if they tried to sell them. What do you care? You're dead. That's on them. They'll make some money. 
whether they get ripped off or not. It's not your concern. If, if you're so concerned about that, instead of curtailing your comic collection because you might die, how about making some notes about their worth, if you're really that concerned? Third, the burden of comic collection because it's clutter. Not clutter. If you think that, you are two things. One, an idiot that I would pay to punch in the face. And someone who should leave comics alone and go be one of those stuck-up a-holes who have nothing better to do than sit around writing articles about how you should throw things away that you haven't used in a year and other assorted bits of neat freak nonsense. Fourth, the burden of comic collecting when you can read comics online or device. For the sake of convenience, comic collecting is bad. Why should I burden myself with them? I hate you people. I hate you people. I hate you people. Trendy little hipsters trying to be modern and scared to use paper for fear that all the forests will die at once if you buy a comic book. Now I'm all about the environment. But do not ruin the institution of the glorious printed page with your holier-than-thou nonsense. Do not tell me that this is the evolution of the book. It's not. It's not a book. A book is a specific thing. You're reading a screen. And if you prefer that, then you're not a fan of comic books. You're a fan of reading stories. Because a comic book is on paper. I will not read a comic screen. I will not collect comic screens. Just because a new form of technology appears, or because a new way of sharing a format appears, that does not by default make it superior. So if you avoid, or worse, got rid of your comics because you can read them all on your tablet or smartphone, and you think that's a superior thing, then I hate you. Go away. Thank you. One cold day in the middle of the night, the penguin and his crew were sitting in their hideout, wondering what to do. The penguin said, Now listen, men, it's time we pull the job. Let's go into the city and find a bank to rob. Robbery, robbery, mayhem and skullduggery. When they heard that evil bird, the penguin was around. They jumped into the Batmobile and hurried into town. Robbery, robbery, mayhem and skullduggery. Ho, 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 and hee, 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 we're off to fight a crime. Robbery, robbery, mayhem and skullduggery. Ho, 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 and hee, 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 they're off to fight a crime. This penguin and his men were breaking through the vault. You know who came crashing in and brought things to a halt. Kapow, kazoom, kazowie, their mighty fisted flail. And 15 minutes later, the penguin was in jail. Foil again, foil again, the penguin had.
Okay, so I'm just randomly picking a couple comics that I read recently that I picked up not too long ago. Uh, titles that I have never really talked about on the podcast. Uh, at a comic shop, I recently bought a stack of uh, Archie comics, Richie Rich comics, other uh, assorted comics that were 50 cents a piece um, because they're fun to read and they're comics. I don't apologize. Um, so I just grabbed at random two out of my stack of comics that I've read this month. One is Little Archie 104 from March 1976. Opening story, Little Archie and Snowball, that's B-A-W-L. Uh, little Archie's getting in trouble for having a snowball fight by Mr. Weatherby, and uh, he, of course, being the principal, and he decides that the best way for them to get it out of their system is to sponsor a big snowball fight at 3 p.m. Girls Against Boys. Turns out, Mr. Weatherby gets a lot more into the fight than uh, he expected, and a mysterious coated figure on the girls' team defeats him. And it uh, turns out to be the uh, female teacher that's in all the Archie comics. I can't think of her name right now to save my life. Um, there's an Archie Twinkies ad, which is fun. There's half-page... There are half-page strips with Fat Charlie and Lil' Jinx. Then uh, the main cover feature, a Little Archie and the Mystery of the Secret Panel. It's a haunted house story, so I always love a good haunted house story. It involves a talking um, bird. I guess it's a parrot. Um, and um, there's a, a, a plot that happens with some bad guys and in the end the parrot lives um, in the house and, and with the parrot speaking it scares everybody into maintaining that the house is haunted. Little Archie and the school fool and then little Sabrina in free ski in which the um, witches she lives with decide they want to go skiing. They use their magic to conjure up skis and by the time they're done they're they're in a rocket-powered sled. <laughs> um, so, you know, harmless stories. Archie stories. The other uh, one I grabbed at random was Sad Sack and the Sarge, number 101. This is a Harvey comic. I can honestly say I've probably not read more than four sad sack comics in my whole life. The quick reads, um, they're all signed by George Baker, um, and there are some that are funny, some that are not. If you like Beetle Bailey, you will possibly like this one. It's another um, army-based strip, pun intended. So the, the uh, Sarge in the stories, and Sad Sack are always at odds, always um, uh, driving each other crazy. And the one story here, called World of Gloom and Doom, Sad Sack develops uh, a zit gun. And he said, it zits you. 
And um, here the word zit is kind of like zap, although it just sounds funny because everyone's getting zitted. <laughs> it's rather amusing. Um, the uh, strip ends with one of the, I guess, generals uh, saying that Sad Sack tries uh, trying to spread happiness around the world. He's goofy. Because, you know, they're uh, in a war. And heaven forbid we stop the war. Um, because it's big business. I was kind of trying to make that point, I guess. A um, couple shorter strips. Um, then another one with the Sarge's cabin getting destroyed. Typical, um, you know... Uh, physical cartoon humor in the strip. Then there's a little, little, little sad sack story. Um, I gotta say, little sad sack is is kind of hard to look at. It's kind of ugly and eh, I don't know. But this story deals with him causing all sorts of um, mayhem. He's sliding down the banister and causing his dad lots of worries. There are some uh, burglars, and he um, makes them run away by playing a record of authentic police sounds. Harvey Comics, uh, these in this era, always had a uh, text piece, text story of the title character. Um, here it's a little sad sack story. And I kind of actually liked the... Um, the opening of this story, of, of how the whole thing got started. It, it, um, it dealt with, you know, a revolving door going in a store. Um, as, a, as a kid, sad sack getting mixed up with the revolving door. And he and his father um, always ending up on the wrong side. Each of them thinking the other's lost. That kind of thing. Kind of fun. And uh, the last story is another little sad sack story. So, I don't, this comic supposedly being of sad sack and the Sarge was half little sad sack. So, there's that. the final comic I'm going to talk about in this episode is Big Bang Comics number zero from Caliber Press, uh, May 1995. Big Bang Comics are rather neat. They are uh, comics styled in the Golden Age style, usually, um, and they're modeled on many DC characters or concepts. So they're kind of like uh, fun analogs. And this issue features stories with the Night Watchman and let's see Thunder Girl, Doctor Weird. Um, the first story with the Night Watchman is in black and white. It's by Tom King. And it's a very quick story in which uh, he takes out Grandfather Clock. It, it's a 
very straight to the point story. Um, my favorite part of this whole story is when he finally defeats father, grandfather clock. Uh, he throws a pocket watch at him, hits him in the head, and he says, time wounds all heals. Calling him a heel, of course. And I thought that was a wonderful play on words. Uh, then you get a, a cover with the Night Watchman, a, a fake cover for uh, deductive comics, which was fun. Uh, then the rest of the issue in color with uh, Thunder Girl and the robber robot. Thunder Girl works in a library. She's a high school student, Molly Wilson. Uh, and um, this big robot comes crashing through town, so she changes to Thunder Girl to stop it. And uh, the, the story involves a scientist and a talking monkey with a gun. And it's a whole bunch, whole bunch of fun. But, of course, it evokes the uh, Captain Marvel Shazam stories. We have Dr. Weird, The Curse of the Mummy. Dr. Weird is kind of like the Spectre, I guess. He's a mystical character, and he has to... He, he comes around whenever there's something um, supernatural to take care of, and in this case there's a mummy. Um, and it says, more eerie adventures of Dr. Weird in every issue of star-studded comics. So, that's fun. We get some more fake covers. Uh, Thunder Girl Adventures. Uh, Jolt Comics, which features uh, the superhero The Blitz. Red Hot Comics, which features the badge and his rookies. Robo Hood, Stars and Stripes, and Vitaman. And I hope that all of these characters on the cover of Red Hot Comics eventually made it to some type of comic story in Big Bang Comics. Big Bang uh, Comics moved over to Image and uh, kept going for quite a while. Then you get a pinup in Kirby style and some sketches of the badge and um, a Big Bang Comics timeline which compares the development of Earth A and Earth B, which is similar to DC's Earth 1 and Earth 2. So that's kind of fun. The um, people who came up with the Big Bang characters, um, and I should mention there's a, a nice back cover by Shelley Moldoff, uh, but the people who made up uh, this universe of characters for Big Bang, Big Bang Comics did an extensive job at it. They even did an issue where they mimicked uh, Steranko's History of Comics, only um, doing it for the uh, Big Bang uh, f fake um, comics history. And I haven't read that yet, but I'm just amazed that they took the time to do that. I should also mention this zero issue of Big Bang has a wonderful Alex Ross cover of Thunder Girl. So, um, if you're into the Golden Age retro-style comics, if you haven't read any already, uh, Big Bang Comics is uh, good stuff. Batman here. What's up? It's the Joker. I found his hiding place. I'm 
Okay. The Batman and Robin Batcoders, walkie-talkies that transmit and receive. Now, both batteries not included. When I press the danger signal, charge. I got your signal. Let's go. Come on out, Joker. Help. No chance. <laughs> the Batman and Robin Batcoders with fold-up antenna, alarm button, and danger signal by Mego. And that'll do it for this episode of Comic Book Attic Giant Size Super Special. Till next time, everyone, read lots of comics and take care. <laughs>